The following audio is from Christ Presbyterian Church in Nashville, Tennessee, where our mission is to follow Christ and His mission of loving people, places, and things to life. For more information about Christ Presbyterian Church, please visit ChristPres.org. So today's scripture reading, um, I will be reading this morning. It is from Matthew 1, 18 through 25. Now, the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother, Mary, had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband, Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. When Joseph woke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded. He took his wife, but knew her not until she had given birth to a son. And he called his name Jesus. This is the word of the Lord. Praise Praise be to Christ. Thanks, Angie. Thanks, buddy. Hey, good morning, everybody. Good to be with you. Great to be with you. I love my church. I hope you love yours. Um, So... uh, If we haven't met yet, uh, lots of familiar faces, always lots of faces I don't recognize as well uh, from the people uh, that are invited by their friends. Uh, Glad you're here too. My name is Scott. I'm one of the pastors along with Pastor Todd and and several others uh, here at Christ Prez. And uh, uh, we have been in a series uh, that we're calling Encounters with Christ. And we actually don't have to depart from that series in order to hone in on this Advent season that just started today because there are four Advent encounters uh, related to and surrounding Jesus' birth uh, that we get to explore. And today uh, we're going to look at a man named Joseph, and uh, the Bible describes him as a just man. And so uh, before we get to Joseph, Um, just acknowledge that the Christmas season for us, whether we have a religious faith or not, it tends to be a season of of miracles, right? uh, We're drawn to uh, miracle-related films like Miracle on 34th Street or Frosty the Snowman, the the, the talking snowman. That's a miracle. Uh, Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer and all the other reindeer that, that um, that lead the flying sleigh that Santa Claus uh, uh, is in, uh, in the sky all around the world. And of course, we, we talk about a miracle, many of us do, in our homes of this, this, this heavyset man dressed in red from way up north who somehow in one evening makes his way into every single home in the world, eats all the cookies, digests them properly, leaves gifts all in a one-horse open sleigh. And so, um, 
It is a season where we're open to fictional miracles, right? But the best fictional miracles, they're actually shadows, and this is, this is what Christians believe, the best fictional miracles are shadows of the miracles of fact, the miracles that Christians believe, uh, and many other religious traditions as well believe, took place in time-space history. And the miracle that the Advent season recognizes is the miracle of the incarnation, where God comes in, our Creator, and He takes on human flesh, lives the life of a person who we know as Jesus Christ. So, um, J.I. Packer, the the great theologian, uh, says that nothing in fiction is so fantastic as this truth of the incarnation. What is true is actually more wonderful than any story that we could make up and tell the kids at bedtime. God in the flesh. And, and so today's Advent narrative, I want to look at two miracles or, or, or acknowledge two miracles, and it might surprise you that I'm going to identify the virgin birth as the lesser of the two miracles, because it is no big deal for God to impregnate a woman that He created without a man. It's no big deal. I mean, if you theoretically believe in the existence of a Creator that's so powerful to create everything that is, and uh, He's so powerful that He would create the laws that govern and order the universe, like for a human to be born, a sperm and an egg need to unite. If, if there is a God who is powerful enough to do all of that, would He not also be powerful enough to suspend the laws that He created just for a time in order to signal to us that we are not alone? that the material world that we see is not all that there is. In fact, there's an even greater reality that we don't see that drives everything that we do. If God is big enough to create the laws, isn't He big enough and strong enough to suspend them? So, my theory is that the virgin birth is actually the lesser miracle. What God does is the lesser, no big deal miracle because He's that powerful. The, the, The greater miracle is what a simple man did. A simple man said yes to an impossible, costly thing, and that man is Joseph. Joseph's story tells us that we've gotten Christmas all wrong. We've sanitized it, we've comfy-cozied it, and we've turned it into something that it is not. Christmas, in the true sense of the word, in its origins, is not sappy. It is not sentimental. Our cheeks are not nice and rosy and comfy cozy. We are not snuggled close together like two birds of a feather. That's not what defines this holiday. Fireplaces and hot chocolate, not what defines this holiday. Trauma is what defines this holiday. God rewriting your story and demolishing your dreams is what Christmas is about. Are you ready? Tim Keller 
says that Jesus coming into the home of Mary and Joseph is like a billiard ball. Wherever he goes, he breaks up old patterns and sends us in new directions that we never expected. So Charlie Brown Christmas, it's my favorite Christmas record. There's a place in Charlie Brown Christmas where Linus is reading the birth account uh, of Jesus Christ. And this is how he reads it. The angel of the Lord came upon them, and the glory of the Lord shone around about them, and they were sore afraid. Sore afraid. They were sore. They were aching with fear, with phobia. Why? Talked about fear, the disruptive nature of fear a couple of weeks ago when we looked at the widow's might. And if there's a moral to the story of the widow's might, is it is that the biggest obs- obstacle that we have between us and God is us and, 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 and our own fear of trusting God more than we trust ourselves, our own fear of, of actually believing that God loves us more than we love us that God has a better story to write of our lives than we have a story to write of our lives. We're afraid of that. We're scared. And what the widow's might needles us on is our money. If you can't be open-handed with your money, you'll never know God in the truest, most adventurous sense. So, I I saw this cartoon in the New Yorker. There are two men standing outside of a church building, and they're both in their boxers and nothing else. And one looks at the other and says, that's the best sermon on giving I've ever heard. (laughs) But it's not like this. Because God isn't calling Joseph into a a moment of radical obedience. I'm going to stroke that check, and then two weeks later, I'm going to forget about it. What he's calling himself to is steady, plotting, daily, rest of your life, faithfulness. And that's how Joseph responds. For Joseph and Mary, this is going to, Christmas is going to strip you. It's going to take all your clothes off. You're going to be standing outside the church in nothing but your underwear. You're going to lose every sense that you have of safety, security, and control because Christmas is here to disorient your life. That's what the season really means. The angel says to Joseph, Joseph, son of David, do not fear. Why do the angels have to say that? Because there's so much to be afraid of. Do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son You shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. So before Joseph's dream, where the angel visits him, it says that he is resolved to divorce her quietly. They weren't married yet. And yet the word divorce is used because they were in the betrothal period, which was sort of an engagement plus. Uh, If you were engaged to somebody, once the ring went on, or their version of a ring, it was done. You were committed 
for life. And, and, and so to, to split up during the engagement was just as tantamount as the disillusion of a 40-year marriage. But you think about Joseph, okay? She is, it says she's found or she's discovered to be with child, right? Eventually, the cat's out of the bag, right? And Joseph is, is dealing with this question. If I stay with her, people are going to do the math. They're going to do the math. And they're going to conclude what any rational person would conclude. And that is that either Mary has been immoral, and I'm a fool for coupling myself with her, or we both have been immoral. Either way, this was, a, this was an honor and shame culture. Either way, Joseph was going to be socially excluded, treated as a second-class person, and from that point forward, he would have a very, very hard time finding work because nobody wants to associate in a shame culture with somebody who has done something culturally shameful. But there's more to this story. Joseph is, from before he welcomes his firstborn son into the world, is overshadowed. Okay, so young parents get ready. There are a lot of you, you know, I see your biceps are big and tight and strong because you're carrying little ones around because you've just had your first child. So young parents, get ready. Because your kids, they're going to be growing up and you're going to be teaching them lessons. You're going to be teaching them lessons that you repeat over and over and over again, like it's important to eat your vegetables. And eventually they're just going to start rolling your eyes, yeah, whatever, you know, pass the dessert. And then somewhere in their teen years, Beyonce is going to go on a commercial and say, you should eat your vegetables, and they're going to become vegan. And, 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 and your kids are going to come to you with this revolutionary news of what Beyonce has just opened their world up to, and you're going to be thinking like, I've been telling you this all of your life, and I am upstaged by Beyonce in the same way. Did you notice this? I want you to adopt him. I want you to pay the cost of raising my boy, but we're not going to call him the son of Joseph. We're going to call him the son of David. Yeah, yeah, you're the righteous man. David was the adulterer and the murderer. We're going to call him son of David. That was a very significant shift in those days. Because in those days, your resume was your offspring. Your credential was your son's. And God is taking that honor away. Not only are you, you going to be a shameful specimen in the eyes of the world, I'm taking away the honor of naming you as the boy's father. He's going to be called the son of David. Matthew chapter 1, verse 1, Jesus Christ, the son of David. So he's upstaged, overshadowed. He's emasculated. He's culturally and emotionally emasculated in his culture. Those days, again, your resume was your offspring. 
The other thing was that, that, that your manhood was determined by your ability to provide, you know, based on what people thought he would have done with Mary before they were officially married. He wouldn't be given those carpenter jobs anymore, or at least they would be scarce. Joseph, is, it's clear that Joseph died young because he wasn't there when Jesus was being crucified in his, in his early 30s. And so Joseph becomes the man who's unable to provide a nest egg for his family. That's a shameful thing in that culture. You know, Jesus is dying on the cross, and what does he do? He looks to his friend John, and he says, John, my mother is now your mother. Take her in, because Joseph was out of the picture, and she had no means for her care. That's just Matthew 1. Matthew chapter 2, it gets even worse because King Herod starts hearing a rumor that the king of the Jews has been born, whoever this king of the Jews might be. And Joseph is given a warning, you need to flee. And so they, become, they assume Middle Eastern refugee status. crazy, isn't it, how we can worship a refugee on Sundays and then ignore refugees for the rest of the week? Refugee status, they flee to Egypt, and Herod gets upset about this, and he issues a decree, I want every boy in the region killed. And so Joseph is living with that on his conscience for the rest of his life as well, that every boy under the age of two in their region was slaughtered because of his boy, who wasn't even his boy. Imagine the looks that Joseph would get out in the community for that. My last thought here, which, which really summarizes all the rest of it, verse 21, where it says, you shall call his name Jesus. In those days, it was a father's absolute right to name his children, especially his firstborn son. And the message here is you're not going to name him. He's going to name you. You're not going to write his story. He's going to write yours. And this is where I think at Christmas time, especially, but really all throughout the year, there's so many of us who, if we're honest, we're going to say, I'm really on the fence. I'm in, but I'm not. You know, I want to be a full follower of Christ except for the sex part. I want to be a full follower of Christ except for the marriages for life part, or except for the money part, or except for the business ethics part. I want to be a fully devoted Christian except for the surrender part. That's our inconsistency. I'm going to believe in God, but I'm going to believe in God on my terms. I'm saying yes to all of this, but I'm saying no to this. With all due respect, that's not following Him as your Lord. That's reaching out to Him as your consultant, as your personal advisor. You don't want lordship. You want recommendations. You don't want Ten Commandments. You want Ten Suggestions. You haven't experienced Christmas yet. 
if that's where your heart is. You've counterfeited it. We're sappy and sentimental. Do you really want this Jesus in your home and around your tree? Do you? Jay Packer calls this the Christmas, the Christmas snob. He said the Christmas snob is, this, is described this way. The ambition in life is limited to building a nice middle-class Christian home, making nice middle-class Christian friends, bringing up their children in nice middle-class Christian ways. But they won't spend or be spent. They won't deny themselves to support the weak, as Joseph does with the vulnerable, misunderstood Mary. You want him around your tree? Do you want him to jump out when you open the gifts? God with us. You want real Christmas. He writes your story, and it's going to make you soar and it's also going to give you the adventure of your life. And then you'll discover over time, you fear God, you're sore afraid of what He brings into your life, you'll never have to be afraid of anything, including Him. The greater miracle is what a simple man did. Joseph woke from the dream and did as the angel commanded. He took Mary as his wife, and he named the child Jesus. Is real Christmas for us as well in our uniquely wealthy, uniquely safe, and uniquely comfortable condition? It, does this story have anything for us, really? Because we are uniquely wealthy. Over half of the world's population, we've said this before, lives on less than $2.50 per day. That probably cannot be said of many of us. We're uniquely safe. There are well over 16 million refugees displaced from their homes around the world today because of violence, not unlike the ancient Herod. 215 million Christians face violence and persecution daily around the world today. Historically, Matthew 2 and the Herod Decree is the norm for people who identify with the Christ child. You find peace with God and you suddenly discover that there are people now who want to declare war on you. That's the norm. We're uniquely comfortable. How many of us in the last year had to sleep outside? How many of us in the last year missed a meal because we had to, because there was no provision? How many of us don't own a coat? How many of us don't have heat in the wintertime? We are unique. And, and so can this story be our story too? Can Christ come into our homes? Here's the good news. In the Great Commission, Jesus says, I want you to go to the ends of the earth because my people are there too. That was us that Jesus was talking about. 
the ends of the earth. He was thinking of us just as well as he was thinking of Mary and Joseph and everybody in Jerusalem and Bethlehem and Nazareth. And We are just as included. There's no shame in being born on third base. You know, the, the rich tend to judge the poor. The, the poor tend to resent the rich because of their condition. That's all wrong. In the same way that, that somebody like me has no business judging people born in entirely different situations for being in the condition that they are, a poor person has no business passing judgment on somebody for being born in luxury. Nobody chose how they came into the world any more than Joseph chose what his father experience was going to be. There's no shame. You know, signs that, 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 that we are attracted to and drawn to the real Christmas experience in our context here are a few questions we can ask ourselves. Do I have a Mary in my life? Is there somebody or some group of people that could say I or we are less vulnerable because of her or because of him? Is there evidence that I am good with the idea of God naming me? And I can Back that up because there have been times when I have obeyed God even when it cost me, even when it felt risky, even when I felt sore afraid, and yet, yet I still believed the Word of God over my impulses and, and carried it out in a terrified sort of way. Or even though I enjoy creature comforts every single day, and my closet is full of clothing. I do not want to be the Christian snob that J.I. Packer described. I want more than the comfortable life that God has given me. But I also gratefully receive, without guilt or shame, the life that God has given me. See, faithfulness for anyone is the same as what faithfulness was for Joseph. We are prepared for war even if we are never asked to go to war. And we've done the necessary work in response to the grace of God to make sure that our hearts are prepared to put our lives on the line even if that day never actually comes. Did you know that in the military... 80% of the jobs are non-combat. 80% of the jobs are essentially what the Western church is for the persecuted church around the world. We are the support system. And that is legitimate. It's legitimate. It's a legitimate calling. The soldiers could not fight with the other 80% supporting and bolstering them in their mission to face violence. And even 45% of the soldiers trained for combat are never deployed for combat. And yet, because their hearts, their bodies were prepared, we honor them on Veterans Day just like we honor those who went to combat. 
because they were willing and ready and equipped and they would have put their lives on the line had they been asked to do so. And maybe that's what success as a Christian looks like for those of us in a uniquely wealthy, uniquely safe, and uniquely comfortable climate. Readiness. You know, it says in verse 19 that Joseph was a righteous man before he had the dream. There was stuff going on in his life and through the course of Joseph's life that had prepared that, him for that moment. His heart had gotten to the place where he would put zero conditions on God. He had trained for war. The muscle memory of his soul was ready if a big moment ever came. And why would a young, obscure teenage man think that the big moment would ever come? And yet it did. For some of us it will, for others of us it won't. You know, I was talking to a dying man in our church a few years ago, died way too prematurely. And as he was, as his life was winding down, I said, what is, what is the basis for your joy? How, how, do you, how are you dying right now better than I live on most days? And his answer was this, I've been a Bible reader every day of my life. I'm just kind of simple, quietly, as Pastor Filson likes to say, gotten the Word, or gotten into the Word of God, so the Word of God would get, to, to, to get into me. And so, now that the big moment comes where I'm facing something colossal, I can do it with poise. I can do it with confidence. It's uncomfortable. I'm sore afraid some days, and yet he steps forward. You know, Malcolm Gladwell talks about this in Outliers, right? You, the way you master something is, is through repetition. You know, 10,000 repetitions is what Glad Gladwell says you need in order to be an expert at public speaking or at whatever. In Joseph's life, what, what got him to that place of faithfulness was, of course, what God had done in his life, as well as his participation of daily working on the muscle memory of his soul through what we call the means of grace, the Word of God, the sacraments, prayer, you know, committed involvement in a local church community, and so on, the basic stuff. He was a righteous man. He wasn't just a Bible hearer, he was also a Bible doer. And those tens of thousands of many decisions to be faithful prepared him for the big moment where, where Big faithfulness was tested, and, and Joseph was able to respond to the Lord, your wish is my command, whatever it costs me. And God's part is, is, you know, before we can be faithful to that degree, God has to impregnate us in the same way that he impregnated Mary. And she's impregnated by the Holy Spirit who entered into her and, and conceived a child. In the same way, our faithfulness, God, ha God has to enter into us, and God has to conceive something in our hearts that prepare us to, to give birth to faithfulness and obedience. It says in verse 20, the son conceived in Mary is from the Holy Spirit. But then it says in verse 23, not 
Emmanuel is God with her, it says that Emmanuel is God with us. That means I've got to be born in you as well, Joseph. You know, this declaration, Joseph is a righteous man, wasn't just about his daily faithfulness before then, it was also about the faithfulness of God to him before he was ever born, before he was ever Joseph, before he ever dreamed of saying this most righteous yes to God that he says in this this Advent event. The son who was taken in by Joseph had long before taken Joseph in as his son, before the foundations of the earth. You know, speaking of David, Psalm 139, your eyes saw my unformed body. All the days ordained for me were written in your book before one of them came to be. In other words, God, you wrote my story. You wrote my story, and that's a much better story than I ever could have written for myself. Joseph would have learned that. Joseph would have known that psalm by heart. And so the son of David, instead of the son of Joseph, would have perhaps been a beautiful thing to Joseph because of the words of David and the life of David that had mentored his heart up until this point. And the irony of this whole thing is that you look back on the life of Joseph in retrospect, what seems to be such an an obscure and tragic and terrifying story is now an epic story because this, this story of Joseph's faithfulness has dissected millions of human hearts for centuries since and will continue to do so for centuries moving forward. The other thing is this, the the, the God who called Joseph to moral courage, you know, this invasive Christ child who comes into his home, was also born for moral courage. One of the commentaries I read said that the only religion in human history that requires its own God to have courage is Christianity. Because he comes in, Jesus does, the son of David, the son of Joseph, comes in not only to risk his life and to risk his limbs, as Joseph was called to do and was willing to do, but to give it. Jesus is the ultimate Joseph, the innocent groom who took on the shame of his bride. And we are his bride, and our shame is not imaginary. This isn't a matter of misunderstanding. We are shameful. There are things about you, there are things about me. We would never want anybody, even those closest to us, to ever know. And yet he knows. And he's born in us. And he abides in us. And he abides with us. We are so exposed before him. And yet never rejected. He was emasculated. Emotionally and culturally for his time, he was emasculated. He never got married. He was never intimate with a woman. He never had a son. He had zero cultural currency. And yet all of this so that he could bring many sons and many daughters to glory.
He was invisible, just like Joseph, but he made himself invisible. Philippians 2, it was by choice. Though being in nature God, he sets aside his glory, makes himself nothing, becomes obedient, says the big yes to his father, says, your wish is my command, not my will, but yours be done. Even death on a cross, he becomes invisible so that we can be to the world so that we can be seen by God. Mild he lays his glory by, born that men no more may die, born to raise the sons of earth, born to give them second birth. Hark the herald angels sing, glory to the newborn king. You want him around your tree? It's going to cost you, but it's also going to set you up for the adventure of your life. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, I come to you uh, after marinating in this text and, and now communicating some of its meaning. I come to you perhaps as the most sore, afraid person in the world. Because I know that as one who marinates and teaches this stuff, that I'm going to be held to an even higher standard. And so my prayer, Lord, is not that you would look at my virtue, but that you would have mercy on my vice. That you would have mercy on me, the Christmas snob, who starts his Christmas music in August every year, not because he wants his life disrupted and disoriented, but because he wants a companion for his hot chocolate. There's nothing wrong with hot chocolate. There's no shame in comfort. There's no shame in being born on third base. But Father, would you so work in us as you worked in Joseph so that like a good, faithful soldier, even if never sent into combat, it can also be said of us, he was righteous. She was righteous because he was ready and because she was ready and because I had planted my transforming spirit in that person's heart and covered that person with my grace and mercy and adopted them into my home. Father, we look to you in wonder and we're sore afraid and we need you. Help us, we pray in your name. Amen.